Welcome everyone to our live event where our panel of experts are here to answer your questions without sales pitches. For those that may be joining us for the first time today, we are continuing our discussion on third-party risk as our last event was going so well on cloud security with questions, participation, and solid answers, we weren't able to get to all the, to, to all the topic uh, questions, so, or this, question, this topic at all. As Cyber Solutions Director for Stealth ISS Group, let me introduce myself. <laughs> I am Todd Zelenka, your host, MC Facilitator. So welcome to CISO Live. <laughs> Yay. Thank you. Yay. Was that, was that a good... <laughs> All right. Over the last two weeks, there's been a huge spike in COVID-19 cases. I myself, I just got back this week from a family visit in Key West, and I'm under self-quarantine until I get my 14 days passed to make sure I keep mm -hmm. everyone safe around me. So I sincerely hope all is well with you and your families as we continue operating in this pandemic era even though we try to make light of it, it is a difference in what we're used to working. So before I introduce our panel, I wanna go over some housekeeping items. Unlike some webinars where you just sit and listen, we encourage and expect participation, but we do ask that you keep yourself on mute unless you're speaking and be respectful of others to avoid talking over each other. Plus, I'm not sure everyone wants to hear what's going on around you as most of us are remote. And I've heard some really strange things lately. We're not going to go into that. For questions, you can use slido.com, event number 87381. Again, that's 87381. You can submit questions anonymously. However, we would appreciate you identifying yourself. That way we can acknowledge that you've asked the question or even let you ask the question yourself if you prefer. If you prefer. Again, we encourage participation. This is for your benefit. To make sure we get to everything possible today, please try to keep your questions around the topic of third-party risk. Our next CISO Live event topic is being compliant does not equal being secure, and that's coming up on August 13th. Now, panelists, you know the rules. No fighting, biting, backstabbing, or crazily wrestling, wrestling maneuvers during the discussion. You know, let's play nice together like we're in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. I know that's not gonna be a problem, I'm sure. So let's meet today's panelists. We have Mr. James Azar coming all the way from Israel. Mr. James, would you like to introduce yourself? Howdy, shalom. Um, <laughs> I am only in Israel on a, uh, on a business trip. I am one of the crazy people who decided to board a international flight and fly somewhere uh, to work with his DevOps teams, but as a CISO, you realize distance from DevOps equals shortcuts in DevOps. So um, I spent two weeks in quarantine here in Israel. I'll spend two more weeks when I get back to Atlanta out of my own will like Todd here. Uh, just rather be careful than uh, put other people at risk. I am a chief information security officer. I also host a podcast called CISO Talks. Again, like this um, very, very um, um, panel that we're hosting today, no sales, just CISO conversations. Fantastic. I'd like to introduce Mr. Paul Oylikin. Did I say that right again? Yeah, that was right on target. Oh, fantastic. Mr. Paul, go ahead and introduce yourself. That was a good intro music, by the way. I was just thinking in my head, I was like, it'd be cool if you had an intro music, and then you <laughs> cue the intro music. That was you nice. ask, I deliver. Yeah. Um, Paul Oylikin, everybody. Um, glad to be here once again. Um, thank you for the invitation. Um, 
I run pjcourses.com, which is a career development program. Um, and I think that's all I want to share for today. So looking forward to having a good conversation with you, with you all. And Mr. Leeton Johnson. All right. Thank you very much. Um, I am based out of South Carolina. I am the CTO of one company and the CIO of another company. Um, and I've been a CISO at a DOD federal agency in the past. And I've got uh, 40 years of experience of doing this. <laughs> All right. Well, glad to have y'all. And last but not least is our fearless leader, Queen Bee and Chief Geek, Miss Dasha Deckworth. Hi, everybody. Thanks for the introduction. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a CISO. I'm a geek. I always like to have my hands in technology and security and, uh, and, and compliance and making sure that we deliver the right solutions for the client. Uh, but I think, Todd, you should introduce also Rob. He is on this call. So I think he's our fearless leader in this case. Okay. I'll be glad to. Rob is my favorite person to introduce because every once in a while we let him come out of the basement and show himself to the public. He is our CEO. He is our fearless leader, Mr. Rob Davies. Hello, morning, afternoon, evening. Uh, I too jumped on an airplane and went transatlantic recently. So my quarantine is ending tomorrow so I can leave the house, which is cool. Um, hello everyone. I guess I'm responsible for this. So uh, enjoy and make the most of it. Promise you no sales pitches. Just ask, ask your best questions and see what happens. All right, so as a reminder, don't forget to ask your questions with uh, via the Slido link. As well, we use chat periodically. Uh, that's a feature here on Zoom to be able to get your responses or get your opinions on some things. Uh, so do not hesitate to use that. Just make sure you include everyone in the conversation. So to jump right into our questions on third party, why should companies be paying attention to third party risk management? Analysts. Number one, they have your data, but it's in their hands. So now you need to be sure what are they doing with your data? What are they doing with your processing? What are they doing with your uh, income mechanisms that you are using from your activities? And these are all areas that anybody needs to be concerned about from a third party perspective. Yeah, and, and I think we've seen, um, I mean, Facebook is probably the poster child for this question, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> they've been in a lot of hot water, Instagram included, because they own Instagram. And I think, what was it, this year alone, they had a, um, a breach. I can't remember the life of me. I don't know if anybody can pull up the information, but there was a, a major breach um, with Instagram. I think um, a third-party company had their data in Azure, right? Um, I'm sorry, not Azure, AWS and um, it was breached. And now Instagram is in hot waters for it. So definitely paying attention to who your third parties are and how they're handling your customers' um, data is very critical. Um, and companies should be um, aware of who they're affiliating themselves with and who's leaving their doors with, um, with their customers' data. I think it comes, into, it comes into an area where you see too often these third-party companies are um, startups that have got multiple business models. Um, they're not always doing exactly what they tell you they're going to be doing. 
And so your data ends up going across multiple different um, business units within that one organization. It's very hard to verify um, a lot of times and just the sheer capacity, it's very hard to verify what they do with your data. It's also very, very costly for organizations to continually audit their third parties. Um, that, that's really the role of the BSO. That's why the BSO was born. And I think to add to that also, um, a lot of, I think it's about a trust. And most companies or most end users, doesn't matter if it's a private person on Facebook, or if it's a company, they believe that if I give it to a third party and they're in the business, they know what they're doing. And therefore, if I just blindly give it to them, everything's going to be fine. And um, I think that trust issue um, is also quite a risk because there's not always, to what James said, there's not always the necessary controls in place. And also, overall, even if you give the data to a third party, even if it's hosted somewhere else, you're still responsible for it as the business owner. And uh, that, that kind of introduces a lot of other risks that most companies or most, yeah, most companies might not even be aware of. I'd like, I'd like to share a story actually that happened to me today, this morning. I finally got a third party uh, due diligence checklist back from a potential vendor for our company. And I'm going through the you know, questionnaire that I had prepared for him to answer. And while these questionnaires are an indication, these quest uh, while these questionnaires are, are, are very informational, some people don't pay attention to what they're answering. So I had a very simple question on there. Do you retain our data? And yes or no, checkbox. Under the checkbox, it says, if yes, please let us know what data do you retain and for what purpose? And they left that part blank. And here comes my favorite part. Um, I have an ethics question in there. Do you have an ethics and compliance policy within your organization? They mark that as no. Real story happened today. I have to, I, I can share it with all of y'all. I, I just have to black out that company's name. I don't want to embarrass them. And so I, you know what, you know, I, I wrote back to the uh, person who wants within our company that wants to do business with them. And I said, negative, find someone else. Understood. Great, great illustration and real life example. So what kind of advice would you give a company that's looking to start a third party risk management program? Maybe they haven't considered that as a risk. Well, let's put it this way. I mean, the, the biggest thing is always understanding that there is a risk. That's a start. So assuming that the companies already understand that their IT provider, their print company that uh, manages their printers, that that is considered a risk. Unfortunately, a lot of companies don't know that. They assume, yeah, okay, I got my printers here um, and they're being managed magically. Or I've got an IT company and I'm connecting via VPN because they need to do this and this. So I think the it goes back to the understanding of what is the risk. So assuming the company knows third party is a risk, the biggest key is understanding who are your partners. And then to James' point is go back and take a look at what are their security policies? What, how are they dealing with data? Even the employees accessing your data or managing your infrastructure, or managing your printers, are they vetted? 
do they do a background check with third parties? Do they have some kind of security training or anything like that? And also the other thing is you as a company, you have to set your own requirements. What are you expecting from your vendors to, um, to do so they, so they make you secure? Um, do you require them to go through annual training? Are you going to ask them once a year, every six months to go through an internal audit where they answer your questions about security, about how they vet their employees and how they store data, how they back it up, all of those things. So there, there's a lot to it, uh, but I think it goes both ways. The company needs to understand the risk first, but they also need to set the guidelines, what they expect from their partners and not the other way around. Biggest problem I've seen right away, starting off with trying to do a third party program, is making sure the senior executives understand they're not giving the responsibility to somebody else, they still have some. And the biggest issue I've seen is almost inevitably, especially at the senior levels, they say, all right, we'll do a contract with so-and-so, now I don't have to think about it anymore. Now I don't have to worry about it anymore. And immediately what, you know, she was saying this whole construct of the risk is still there. I mean, the risk doesn't go away because you let somebody else take responsibility. I mean, we've got in, in the U.S., we've got laws that tell us the accountability can't be transferred to somebody else. It's still yours. So you have to understand that first and foremost. Then you've got to walk through all the efforts as you would do in your own organization walking through how do they handle with their personnel? How do they deal with their location? How do they handle your data? What are they doing with your data? Who's doing it to it? Are they got third parties going down the line? And that's part of the whole thing with this third party risk scenarios that cascades down their supplier line just as much as it does ours. And so we have to deal with those arenas as well. As you know, Capital One found out last year with Amazon being their cloud provider, one of Amazon's employees took off with their data. You know, it didn't have anything to do with Capital One, but who's the one that's under the, the gun from all the regulators? Capital One, right? Because it's their accountability. And so that's what the third party mechanism is. Yeah, it helps on some areas of the economics of the organization, but there's a big what if sitting over here that you have to account for as far as risk goes. Well, Layton, you bring up a great point. And, and if we look at Capital One as an example of a third party breach, that employee that, that did that breach that cost a great CISO his job, yeah. Great CISO, his job. Oh, I know. I knew him too. In a perfectly <laughs> executed incident response plan, a perfectly executed incident response plan. Very, very irritating, that piece right there. Was done with an employee that left their former employer. That person was yeah. no longer working at AWS to begin with. Right. But she still had access to all that information through AWS. And while Capital One is under the regulatory gun, AWS continues to, to thrive. Furthermore, it brings up this whole idea of contractors and vendors. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people hire these companies 
and they're hiring these companies to do work for them as freelancers who are hiring other freelancers to do the work on your project that sits somewhere else in the world and you think you're engaging a company out of Baltimore, Maryland, and really they're engaging three guys out of India, two guys out of Serbia, one guy out of Bulgaria, another guy somewhere else in the world that you don't even can point out it on a map. And, and, and that's how they're, they're doing business with your information, your data, your access. And if you don't have a good security program, if you're not monitoring their logins, if you're not looking at the IP addresses, this can go on for ages and you'd never know the risk that you're getting from that company. And you know, I've seen it time and time again, where if you don't have the proper third party risk, if you don't have your finger and in business today, everything is interconnected. Every single business has relies on SaaS and, and platforms as services within their infrastructure. No company's reliant only on itself today. Everything is integrated. You know, Paul brought up Facebook and Instagram. Well, they were breached because of an advertiser, the, you know, an advertiser in India. So, you know, it, it, it's a matter of, of really having your finger on that pulse and understanding not only how to create your third party security program, but how to cons consistently monitor it and explain that risk to your board, explain that risk to your CEO, right. explain that risk to the CIO, explain that risk to the general counsel, and even bring on your insurance company, whoever underwrites your cyber insurance policy and explain that risk to them. So that way they pay more attention to it. I would throw out there if I can, this is great. Leighton, I think, you know, the fact that you brought up uh, Capital One's an interesting thing, because I would say my recommendation would be to reach out to your network too, to see who you know in banks. Because I think typically they, being regulated, they typically have a, a degree of rigor uh, in third party uh, information security management uh, where you could look at a program at a bank and say, this is how a bank would do it. Is this what I need uh, with, with relative to, you know, uh, the risk appetite for your company. Um, but, um, you know, looking at a bank, there's a, there's a big miss on the part of that bank. And, and as Dasha and, and Leighton both said, you're not outsourcing the risk. You still own that. Right. So it's uh, the failure there was on capital ones because their diligence wasn't complete or it wasn't tested. Um, you know, so, uh, but I would also say that, you know, <clears throat> a good starting point may be to talk to some people uh, in your network who, uh, who do work in banks that work in that space of third-party risk. Um, you can look at a questionnaire and start to see the types of questions they're asking. James, you bring up another great point. Talk to your insurance provider. They may tell you what they need. Uh, where, where you're going to find that breach in your insurance policy, that's probably some stuff you're going to need. So uh, uh, that, that's fascinating stuff. Like I said, I, you know, practically how to do that. It, it's a messy space. It's a very messy space, but I think banks generally, maybe government entities um, tend to, to have the, uh, run a tighter ship, uh, but nothing's impenetrable. That may be James, but one thing of course about that whole scenario is that when, when the feds showed up at her place in Seattle, she had data from 30 companies, not just capital one, you know, lot, so right? she was a bad actor. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and, but, and by the and, way, some, and some of that data wasn't encrypted. We don't hear about right. the 30 other companies. Correct. Capital One's data was all encrypted, like 99.8% right. of it was. Right. Hmm. You, know, yeah. you know, being a VPN administrator, which is what her job was, you know, she had all the back doors. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we laugh, but that says something about well, how... Exactly. My whole point is, you know... 
right? You know, we put that kind of rigor into background screening of people who were bringing in. You may be bringing in state actors. You may be bringing in a lot of different people. There's no, there's no telling. You know, that's why the government's pushing this whole new thing on on vendor risk management mechanisms that we see right now with the the new DOD CMMC routine about supply chain risk management. And that's what it's all about, you know. Um, the government's created a whole new area of security controls that organizations to follow under supply chain risk management all in the last 12 months because they've seen the same thing. You know, I mean, the data is walking out the door. You know, DOD estimated last year to the tune of $600 billion, you know, so that's a lot of things to pay attention to. <laughs> yes. Does anyone know if Capital One incurred any, um, any fines from that breach? Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> They're I, still I would, under investigation. I would hope not. not. Yet. I would hope not because um, I think James' sentiment was that I mean, you can't, you can't, you couldn't have prevented that, right? There was no way for you to uh, to to circumvent something like that. Other people's employees. Oh, I don't know about that. They didn't change passwords because she held it, still had access six months after she left. Oh, so let me get this straight. The password was under um, Capital One's control. Uh, the password was under the VPN control that Capital One had. Oh, okay. I didn't get that piece of information. Okay. That's a but, 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 but also to point that out, Leighton, you're not given a full picture there. Right. She worked for AWS. She didn't work for Capital One. Right. That password exactly. wasn't changed because AWS was a vendor for Capital One and AWS right. was managing that part of it. So AWS failed to, inform, failed to change their password when they had turnover within their own staff. And it keeps and going on. And, and the story one. keeps going, you know. <laughs> and, and the snowball keeps getting bigger and bigger, bigger and bigger, bigger and bigger. Yeah. Right, exactly. But they will get, Paul, to, to answer your question, they're going to get fined. It's just a wow. matter of how good their lawyers are when they negotiate that fine. There's no way they're not getting fined. Just like right. it, they inevitably fired a CISO who had no right being fired for it, at best, he could have been reprimanded. Like the worst thing they should have done is reprimand him, not, not let him go. Right. I, I hope in their, in their contract with AWS that that fine will be, you know, tunneled through them or something oh, like that. Oh, come on. Have you ever read an AWS contract? It's not even close. Oh, man. That's <laughs> terrible. Overall, I think, I think what it comes down to here is as, a, as somebody outsourcing something to third party, um, yes, read the contract, make sure you understand it, make sure it's clear. But at the same time, it kind of comes down to if you're developing your own program or third-party mm. program management to put in a rule to you as the, as the, as the end client to validate and verify what your third party actually is doing, like doing oh, internal absolutely. audits and making sure they really do password changes. Um, it's, I know it's, a, it's an old well, it's not an overkill. It's extra work, but for the sake of your data and for the sake of uh, your business, it's probably most likely worth doing that extra effort, going that extra mile, and making sure you know what your provider really is doing versus what they think they're doing. I got to say, that's a tough one from a business perspective because I am outsourcing because I don't want to deal with that work right i, I want to <laughs> save some money so for me to oversee on a granular level you know um that's a tough one but in, in this kind of case i mean i guess you have to right because i'm, I'm looking it up now it's, it could be up to 500 million yikes yeah right that's crazy so just be glad it wasn't part of gdpr 
<laughs> oh, <laughs> so the film was made in contract language as well, and these things can look really scary to the uninitiated. Don't be frightened to ask for a second opinion or ask uh, ask a friend just to go through that contract with you because you know they, they can be quite confusing. But you need to understand their responsibilities with your data, and you you're perfectly at liberty to query that and and improve that where you can. So yeah, don't just put the contracts in a drawer understand it i think is the point right absolutely i mean one of the biggest things that i've seen that i worked in the fields there was to make sure that the company that wants to let the contract out needs to make sure that their security parameters are in the contract that the receiving contractee is getting all right in order to meet the criteria is you got to have what your standards are that they're going to adhere to, regardless of what theirs are, but the contract needs to show what your standards are, and that's the big piece, that way you at least you got some sense that they're gonna meet what you need, otherwise they're not meeting an SLA. Right, yep. so, so the point is again, you know, if you're not sure what you need, get some advice, just don't, don't let AWS advise you, uh, get, get some third party advice. Exactly. And I, I can relate a story. I can relate a story that's just happened to us this week. Is as someone was looking at possibly doing business with us, they did some research and and tried to figure out any of the affiliations that we had because they're trying to do their due diligence on making sure they know who they're doing business with, and they're in the financial sector as well. Um, Coover, I saw you had turned on your video and your mic. Did you want to ask a question or chime in? Yeah, I was going to basically say what ended up uh, being said that number a couple of points is number one, you really have to watch out not only about the people that you're working with directly referring to a third party, but you also have to worry about those individuals who you outsource to fourth and fifth and ongoing, uh, not only at the point in time when you're doing the assessment, but also on an ongoing basis annually or six months, depending on what the company's uh, capabilities are and whatever the contract is in agreement with. But another point that I just want to uh, further emphasize, and I think Dasha had pointed this out, is that it's important to ask these questions for attestations, to ask the question and get a confirmation of what they're saying, but also get validated evidence of what they're saying, right? It's ensuring that they can provide evidence that they are performing pen tests, they are performing um, a proper identity access management, onboarding, offboarding, uh, as the point referring back to the uh, breach we just discussed. So those those issues are very important in the third party space. Uh, I've been lucky enough to get involved and literally develop the third party security programs for Ford and General Motors. So thought it was beneficial and great job so far. Thank, Thank you. you. Hey Thank folks, you. I, I do have to sign off. I apologize. Um, but um, thank you so much for having me on the panel. Um, I look forward to the next one, guys. Thank you. Thanks, James. Cheers. Take Thanks, care. James. So that does lead us into, let me just refresh now that we're about halfway through. If you have questions, you can use slido.com, event number 87381. I am working through the list of questions. Uh, you can also use the group chat to let me know that you want to ask your question in person. That just helps me identify who it is, because a lot of these were from last week and uh, the last session in Anonymous. Um, so if you hear your question and want to chime in, please do not hesitate. Because um, again, this is interactive. So thank you for your participation so far. Um, the, the I guess the next question that kind of 
ties into what we've been talking about. Um, what are some of the other things that may not have already been discussed that organizations can do to make sure that the companies they work with are taking care of their security properly? Uh, we've talked about the things in the contract and, and uh, you know, the, the, the questionnaire that was filled out. Are there any other methods that, that can be used or, or would be suggested to be used as you're starting to work with other companies and concerned about their security? And smart, really. Right. Um, are, are they meeting a certain criteria, um, a certain um, compliance um, benchmark? You know, if it's a financial department, are they meeting PCI DSS um, requirements? Right. Have they have they done a certain level um, pen testing? I mean, do you have a preferred? I have a third party pen tester. They know exactly what to look for. They're legitimate. We've got to input this the cost of that of that annual or biannual pen test in our contract. You guys need to get that done annually and we want to see the results of it. Um, I'm a big fan of, well, not a big fan, but uh, just again, thoughts in my head is how much work do I, how granular do I want to see, um, look into your network, right? Um, how, you know, do I want to create an entire department to do that, right? Or do I just want to say, okay, these are accredited accreditations that you need to collect. You need to submit that um, stamp every year because, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think someone mentioned accepting the risk, right? There's always a certain level of risk that you just have to accept when you're dealing with third party. It's, it's really out of control. In my personal opinion, Capital One, <laughs> it was out of their control in, the, um, in a sense, um, just based on what I've heard so far. And um, so, yeah, just get them to, to do the benchmark and perfectly, if something goes down, um, the, 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 the powers that be won't find you as much <laughs> because you check for those benchmarks. Well, I fully agree. I think uh, I think everyone needs to understand the prevailing governance requirements of their own industry. So you're right. If you're taking credit cards, then PCI DSS is probably something that you need to be familiar with, and then measure your service provider against that. If key word there's measure, right? I, I think you've got to really look at that as. If you're doing it on your own, you're going to want some key operating metrics around all of that stuff, right? So what are the metrics that you would impose if you were doing it yourself? And what would you be looking after? I'd be looking at, you know, on boards, off boards, entitlement review. That's where I don't know that uh, that Capital One's going to get off the hook so easy, right? In terms of how, how often and did they get evidence from AWS that they were doing entitlement review? Um, you know, uh, and looking at, you know, are they entitling to the, to, to, to the um, you know, so they don't have toxic entitlements. Are they entitling down to the only the need necessary? Or are they giving over entitlement? Um, I think there's a lot of things you could look at there uh, from a metric standpoint that you would want to probably bake into things that they're going to need to deliver to you to make sure you've uh, they've, they've been tested, right? It's not just a matter of saying we've agreed to this, but are they performing ongoing testing to ensure that they're, they're living up to their end of the bargain? That's fantastic points. The leads into kind of the next question that, that ties right right into what you're talking about is how are the regulatory expectations intensifying with third-party risk management and how are they intensifying intensifying even more in the wake of telework i don't know it's so much telework i think it's the third-party risk that's showing up it's, it's not so much that it's a telework issue um, it's because that's incumbent inside the companies themselves with everybody working, you know, you know, WFH or whatever they're doing. I think it's more that the third party risks 
are being paid attention to when they should be being paid attention to, you know, and we're seeing that the regulatory environment across the board, whether it's banking, whether it's energy, whether it's government, it doesn't matter. They're all seeing this coming bigger and bigger and bigger problems. As we see, like you said, between advertisers all of a sudden creating breach events and all sorts of things that uh, the third parties are, you know, if nothing else, enabling by not following what the organization wants them to do or not being told what the organization wants them to do. So it's incumbent on both sides of the equation um, in order to meet those criteria. Any, anybody else have anything on that? Yeah, I think. Dasha, you know, you talk about the commingling of data last week, right? Where do you see to, to the question Todd just asked, the threat surface being bigger in a work from home scenario and people are using their own devices in many cases. Do you see that? Do you see that risk and threat expanding because of either BYOD uh, or um, or just because, as Dasha pointed out last week, that co-mingling of data, even on mobile devices, you know, um, you're putting apps on your phone that you know, they get into your hotel room uh, that may have a, uh, may not cooperate well with other apps that are on your phone. Is there, is there an ability to, to, uh, you know, to, 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 to test for that kind of stuff from a corporate standpoint? If Only you, if you set it up ahead of time, <laughs> you know, one thing I wanted to add here as well on the regulatory and compliance requirements is, um, I mean, a lot of, especially the DOD is setting requirements on third parties uh, like AWS, Azure to meet certain security requirements. Mm -hmm. And if you as a vendor, for example, want to do business with the government and you have a cloud uh, solution or a cloud service that you provide, you have to show that wherever you host it, that they need uh, in this case, the DFARS requirements, which is encryption, which is connectivity, annual audits by a third party, and then, and then, and So it's coming there. Um, I honestly have not seen it in the commercial world yet. I mean, you've got the regulatory requirements for HIPAA, uh, GDPR, and all that. But honestly, I don't, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think I've seen a official requirement for AWS or anyone to have there a specific cloud instance that is, for example, HIPAA or um, PCI. Actually, they do. They do? Yeah, for PCI, for HIPAA, um, for GDPR, they all have to show that compliance to regulatory bodies around uh, PCI. They got to do it to the council. Uh, HIPAA, they got to do it to HHS. Um, GDPR, they got to do it to the country's DPOs, um, as the case may be. But, uh, but how is that, uh, and I've, I've seen that a few times, but usually it's around their particular infrastructure, not necessarily the endpoints and the operating systems or the, uh, the hardware or the VMs that they're giving the end user. I've seen well, a lot of that has to do with the fact that, for example, in AWS, the end user is the responsible party for configuring all storage. And that's been an AWS standard since they started back in 2006. And so they can't really regulate AWS is doing that because it's an end user issue, you know, yeah. that type of thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the proverbial, you know, issue with the whole thing about S3 buckets is 
that's client controlled. That's not AWS controlled. And it's exactly. never been an issue. You know, it's yeah. never been an AWS problem, but that's always been their escape too. I mean, 90% yeah. of all AWS based breaches are because of misconfigurations on S3 buckets, which is client control. But you I know. think that's also the biggest problem. And Greg, you pointed out because the client right. see, okay, AWS is HIPAA certified, which means whatever I do, it's HIPAA certified. But it's that special, it's, it's that gray line or that gray zone that it's, it's really on the end user. Mm -hmm. They might, the data center or AWS, they might provide the ISO certification for their part, but it's yeah. not all the way to the end. It's not all the way to the data Right, and that's exactly the whole point of understanding third-party risk is that it's a shared thing. And that's the biggest issue that most corporations that I've run into, I've even done it when I've walked in on a 65,000 person company and went through the same thing with them as well a couple of years ago. It's, it's a shared responsibility. It's not, you know, one or the other. But unfortunately, from the top, the senior leadership says, the senior guys, the senior bosses all say, oh, I got somebody else. I got a contract with them. It's their problem. It's mine. It's not mine anymore. And that's not the appropriate way to handle third party risk. I mean, by far and away is because we run into the conglomeration of, you know, cycles, layers and layers and layers, as we're seeing with the Capital One, as we're seeing with all these others, that it keeps going down and down and down the pipe four, five, six levels, which is why DOD is doing it, because they're looking at six levels down and they're finding this problem. <laughs> you know, that type of thing on their third party. All right, fantastic answers. Um, the, one, of the, one of the questions that really makes sense uh, the, to continue the conversation is, how can, an, how can an organization transform third party risk into a competitive advantage? I'll kind of hit a little bit on it, but, but I think that's a valid question. Um, what do you mean by competitive advantage? Do you know? Well, in in light of in light of the breaches that have occurred, uh, like like the one we've talked about with uh, with Credit One or Capital One, um, how how does how does other organizations turn that third party risk situation into a competitive advantage that they're trying to protect against? Oh, okay. I think any third party provider. Um, or managed service provider, anyone else, if they have their own internal um, assessments, which they share with the client, or maybe even put in with uh, in the contract, in the contract that um, with whoever the end client is, that they will share their audits, or let the third party or the end client come in on an annual basis and review their security on an assessment basis. I mean, it's done in the financial area. Um, oh, I know it's, it's extra time and effort, but I think if you want to prove as a service provider, as a cloud provider or third party to your clients that you are taking this seriously, you have to be able to show it, prove it, and make the client happy. And if that requires an annual audit uh, or sharing the annual audit information with the end client, I think that's, that's a good start. 
um, will you be able to, as a provider, to meet every client's requirement from a regulatory perspective? Probably not. Uh, but if you use best practices on the security side, um, you, you're probably pretty good off, and especially if you're sharing it and if you're, if you're transparent to your end clients and, uh, and collaborating with them, especially if they're trying to evaluate, are you a good fit for their, uh, for their business operations? How do you expect third-party risk management strategies to evolve in the next decade? Oh, that's a scary one. <laughs> I With didn't IT. write the question. <laughs> <laughs> With IT, you never know. I mean, AI is coming around the corner, right? That's a whole different ball game there. Um, this is a tough ball. I think the, the demand is going to be more and more for if you're going to receive a contract, not only let a contract, but receive a contract, you're going to have to have some sort of uh, documentable attestation with evidence to the parties that are going to be working, or otherwise you're not going to be able to have a contract. Um, I think that's one big step that's coming. Uh, we're starting to see that in the financial arena. You know, Chase had this big problem, what was it, seven, eight years ago, where they lost 73 million credit cards um, seven or eight years ago. They basically built an entire third-party management system around how to make sure that their providers, okay, um, manage all of their data so that was not repeatable. And they built that mechanism. So I see that that's evolving. The bigger the customer, the more that the third party providers are going to have to start to um, open up and show what they have and what they don't have. Mm -hmm. And so those types of things are going to have to come into play. Um, you know, we started seeing it under the requirement now on the banking side to provide SOC 2 reports, not just SOC 3 attestations, but the full-fledged SOC 2 reports of their status, their mechanisms, what they have, what they don't have, et cetera. Um, you know, um, primarily, I suppose, because the financial industry is the one that has the biggest commercial bullseye on their back, you know, for everybody coming after because they got all the money. And so that's where the cyber criminals are going to be focused to start with. Um, and we're starting to see it expand out that way. We've got the same thing going on on our uh, governmental side. Um, we've got the same areas starting to happen with, you know, the whole PCI retail side as well. You know, nothing is 100% guaranteed for sure uh, in any of these but it gets, you know, the 95% out of the way. And then you can focus on those 5% issues where you got APTs and you got other stuff coming after you, uh, but that type of thing. You know, so long as everybody does their normal cyber hygiene, you know, you get a good shot at it along with those. But <laughs> as Paul right. said, AI, uh, machine learning, um, uh, Machine to machine communications, whether it's IoT or direct, either way, 
we see all of these now having to pay attention. You know, somebody listening to an IoT connection where there is no human watching. Now we've got to get to this continuous monitoring and world uh, in order to manage the risk around our data moving. You know, how much of the world has actually shifted out of SSL over to TLS? You know, uh, an awful lot of mid-level businesses, they haven't even started, you know, thinking about that. And SSL has been deprecated for two and a half years. You know, <laughs> we're not supposed to be using it at all, no matter what. And, you know, it's all over the place. You know, so, you know, I see that coming. I also see that... Um, security vendors are gonna to have to start paying attention to rotation faster. And companies are gonna to have to understand and build that into their contracts on technologies. Because we're in, you know, a, not only a breach a week, but a new technology week scenario. We got going on right now, you know, both ways. And so we have to pay attention. And that's part of the contractual obligations. That's part of the contractual negotiations. That's part of the, you know, those types of things that has to be included as well. So I see it getting bigger and I see it expanding um, as to coverage. Um, Gerald, Gerald Daniel had, uh, had chimed in, uh, one of our participants. He says he's got a real world example of a third party causing a $60 million fine. Gerald, you wanna come. tell us about that? Sure, I, I worked in the IT department for a major bank and we acquired a bank from another state and after the merger was completed, we received a fine from the federal government for $60 million. And what, what we didn't understand was why that wasn't disclosed in M&A. But what happened was the other bank had hired a third-party company to do uh, encryption of data. And the contract read encryption of data, but they didn't spell out at rest or in transit. And so they were never... They were never encrypting the data in transit, only at rest. And the federal officers came in and saw that, find them. We, we acquired the bank, and so we received the fine. Yeah. Wow. But it, uh, it was just a dollar figure that, that, and this was a small bank that occurred on it. wasn't a major bank. Uh, so probably the fine would have been bigger had the footprint of the bank been larger. Thank you for the example. And, and it, I think it does tie into the, not just the security ramifications, the contractual ramifications, you need advice from legal, um, from you know, cybersecurity advisors, et cetera. Um, what are the most unexpected pitfalls for a CISO that wants to strengthen an enterprise third-party risk management program? The lack of control inside the contract the contractual missing parts because the third parties will inevitably come back and say, that's not part of our contract. That's going to cost you. Or unwilling to say it, do anything, or, as you said, Layden. Right. <laughs> and I, I think that it needs to start then going forward. So for program yep. management, if the issue is with legal and the contractual clauses, then part of the program management and the approach is, every new contract that will be signed going forward needs to have these and these requirements in there. And that's basically said the company setting, what are we expecting from a, from our third party 
what security standards do they need to adhere to at a minimum before we can do business with them. And Absolutely uh, right. Tim said that earlier too. If they don't have it and you're not aligned, then maybe it's not the right third party for you to do business with. But it's your own risk as a company. It's your risk. So you have to set the rules and then find the right partners that can work with you. At least somewhere in the middle ground where you can cover as much as possible from the security. It's not always going to be one-sided where you're going to get, as, as a company, everything from AWS that you want. It would be nice, but I don't think we're there yet. But at least if you can cover majority of your security requirements and the best practices and get that in a new contract, then that will be a way forward. Now, you still will have the legacy ones. If those can be renegotiated, great. If not, once they're out for renewal, that's when you go back to the whole new process of here are the requirements, let's sit down, let's figure it out. Because otherwise, if you don't start there, you're always going to have the problem. And then trying to change a contract afterwards, that's going to be harder than trying to negotiate a new one. That's why I said it was the number one biggest issue of trying yeah. to do this is because it's built into contracts, you're stuck three years, yeah. five years, whatever it might be. Yeah. I've also seen, especially on the larger companies or financial sector particularly, it's the sheer volume of third parties that companies have. And one of the approaches they do is they're trying to scale it down and say, we're no longer accepting any third parties. This is our vendor. This is our third party baseline. And unless somebody jumps ship, we're not bringing anyone in. And so that's kind of where you try to manage the scope from, let's say, 300 vendors or third parties to just keep it to the basics. That what do we really need? And the the smaller the scope is, the better you can manage it because you will need to do the assessments, you will need to review, you will need to, and that requires people, time, resources, and and staffing and know-how, which is another problem that eventually comes in. It's trying to have a big fully functional third-party risk management in place, it's um, it's most likely not going to be a one-man show. You will have legal involved, you have, will have IT involved, operations involved, and of course, the people that manage and audit it, so internal compliance of third parties as well. So, Dasha, I'll go ahead, I'll cover. Sorry, so I was going to say, Dasha, that's a perfect example, um, you know, defining with all the different stakeholders in the organization, what is the base minimum level of security requirements that you want to have any third party uh, comply with. And then what we ended up doing, which is a really good thing, take those approved internal minimum security requirements and provide them to the purchasing and legal groups so that as new engagements come on board through stake through business stakeholders who want to bring on a third party this becomes part of the base contract that goes into all the negotiations and that that gets reviewed with the third party uh, in addition to the other individuals who are involved with the overall due diligence and uh, provisioning and uh, purchasing associated with that third party so that really helps out by getting those base requirements in and to your other point when it comes time for renegotiation is a good time to review it. But in addition, based on the risk to the to your company, what would impact it based on what this third Sounds like Cooper may have <laughs> had an internet connection problem. Yeah, it looks um, if he gets if he refreshes, we'll let him uh, finish. 
Jim, just, you just had a, a comment. Quick, Go ahead. Just a quick uh, add to that is 100% um, agree with him that that's the process. But also, and especially for the audience, you have something to consider is uh, if you're especially a small business or mid-sized business and you have a third party managing your um, printers, in the, we've seen a lot of times that the connection from the printing company that manages your printers that are in your office usually is Telnet or FTP, which is not secure at all, should not even be allowed. Um, and the biggest risk that I see here is you've got most of the printers that we have, they're smart. They've got storage attached to it, they're attached to your network, they take images, they fax, they scan, they do whatever, and it stays on the machine. So if you have, even if it's your third party provider managing your devices, an unencrypted connection, Telnet FTP to it to manage it and count how many papers you print per month so they can bill you at the end, um, have a look at it. It is a serious risk, not just from a having access to whatever you scan and print, but also the minute you're in the network and your printer is connected to your network, you're in. And that's a huge risk for your enterprise. Yeah. So have a look at it. My suggestion, even if as a company, you don't start a complete program right now, at least have a look at the immediate vendors that you currently have that are connected to your network. Not a problem. And Cooper did just send me, he said, sorry about that. I did say I had internet problems, so we understand. Um, <laughs> Jim, you had uh, made a comment uh, going back to Leighton's prior comments. You want to chime that in, please? Yeah, sure. So, Leighton, you know, really, really good conversation on where you see that going in the next 10 years. Um, with the hygiene you spoke about, um, mm -hmm. do you see AI, ML, potentially quantum computing doing more of that heavy lift? Uh, in ensuring that that hygiene is there and maybe even bouncing off of contracts to make sure you're building that stuff into into your contracts where you're getting alerting from those kinds of uh, algorithms. I, I, what I see coming is I see the cyber hygiene for suppliers coming into play more. I mean, we got obviously the cyber hygiene for user mechanism anyway, but what I really see coming into play more and more is going to be cyber hygiene standards set in play for suppliers and especially in certain types of industries like financial or, you know, whatever it might be um, starting to come into play. The more and more people we got using big data, the more and more people we got using IOT, the more and more people we got using all of their business on their iPad or on their tablet, the more and more we're going to have to have to deal with those types of issues coming into play from that perspective. So, yeah, I, I see it. I see ML doing a lot of the work in that because, of course, um, we can use that to do the repetitive stuff, um, that type of thing to help check those mechanisms. You know, for example, when I get on my network, when I support my government customer with the government box, it automatically knows that I'm missing two patches. So it patches them, period. You know, and I don't even have to do a thing. You know, that type of scenario that's coming in, you know, as part of those processes and to, just to help maintain the cyber hygiene, you know, that type of thing. Because, you know, um, we've seen, you know, the scenario about um, end users and have heard it for years and years and years. But 
you know, we still have to be able to do those mechanisms and we have to do it in such a way that it doesn't necessarily interfere with the business that's going on because everybody still needs to do that. Fantastic point. And as we're starting to run out of time, I, I do appreciate everyone's participation today. The attendees, thank you so much for joining us. The panelists, thank you again for being part of this great discussion.